0: Anybody that has never read The Big Red Rock Eater has missed a classic of childhood literature. With that, we will dismiss the children to uh, Jesus' kids. They're learning about the crucifixion today. They're also still practicing their song, Be Here Next Sunday, because they will be doing their song for us. So anybody who has a child between the ages of kindergarten and fifth grade, would like them to join in. We'll... They'll head back to the red room. As I was told this morning, it's like hurting cats. <laughs> the topic today is hope secured. What does that mean to you? I looked up the definition of hope in the dictionary and there's actually several definitions and you find a lot of language about wishes and desires and longings and some unsure type of confidence. I mean basically the dictionary tells us that what it calls hope depends on our internal feelings and our internal longings. The question we have to ask Is that what a Christian's hope is based on? And so today what we're gonna look at is that our hope is based on something more than wishes and longings and desires. But to get there, we're gonna take a little trip. So I'm gonna ask you to go on a little journey with me, if you don't mind. We're gonna go visit a land, and we're gonna go visit a land that is at the top of the world, right? It is the hub of commerce, it's the hub of learning, it's the hub of knowledge, Um, In a lot of ways, it's the hub of religion. Christian churches have been established in this land, but there's many other religions as well. And everything looks good. All seems right with the world, but there's storm clouds on the horizon. The general society itself is full of ills. Sexual immorality is rampant. Addiction, abortion, oppression, intolerance, the cult of personality leading to the worship of human individuals. They're all part of what's going on in the society. Women, minorities, and non-citizens are treated as second-class at best. And the government's less concerned about their citizens and more concerned about their power, their wealth, and their place in history. But at the same time the church has problems. Because within the church you've got, unfortunately I have to say it, sexual immorality within the church. You've got heresies that have taken root and have not been expunged. Um, A lot of churches are just going through the motions. All action, no spirit. Wealthier churches seem to have bought into the whole health and wealth thing, and so they're chasing more and more riches while their poor brothers and sisters are left to fend for themselves. It's just a mess. There are some shining lights. We do have some shining lights, but it seems as if they're becoming fewer and fewer and dimmer and dimmer as the church becomes like the society around it. And even the church that was once tolerated is coming under attack. The government is pushing back against the church in ways it never did before. The citizens are pushing back. They're, you know, Christians are called racist and haters and liars and cheats and charlatans. Does it sound familiar? What's really amazing is this the, is the church that John was confronting when he received the revelation. And so John was given a combination of a letter of, excuse me, prophecy and apocalypse, which in the Greek just means an unveiling. It's like, well, it's like a wedding, a traditional wedding where the bride's wearing the veil over her face, and you can see her, but you can't see her completely until you lift the veil. And that's what's happening here. God is lifting the veil on some things that were there that we could kind of see, but now we can see them more plainly. So here we are with this, this church, in this nation, and all these things going on. And in the midst of all that, where do you find hope? What kind of hope do you find? And that's why Revelation was written at its base. It was written to a church in the midst of this mess to give them hope and to help them understand where their hope truly lies, and it's not in longing and desires. Our hope is as solid and sure as the God we serve and worship. And that's what we're going to look at today, that our hope is secure in God's unseen realities. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're going to go through a little uh, biblical history because what I want to show you is that God's promises are true even when they're unseen. That what God tells us is reality even though we haven't experienced it yet. And to start off with, I want to point out something that I think a lot of us miss when we're reading Revelation because we think Revelation. Right, Jesus gave this to John, John tells us about this, and then we get all caught up into the beasts and the numbers and then this and that and the others. Right, The very first, very first line says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. This unveiling was given by the same God that was present in the Garden of Eden now all of us remember what happened in the Garden of Eden you got Adam and Eve you got a serpent you got a fruit and the next thing you know you got a world full of sin but just as soon as Adam and Eve sinned and they're being cursed by God They're being driven out of the garden. In the midst of God punishing them for what they've done, in Genesis 3.15, he gives them a promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the very beginning, God promises restoration. Now, was there anything in Adam and Eve that deserved that promise? No. I mean, they're the ones that just disobeyed God, right? That promise was made by God because of his own nature and his own love. It had nothing to do with what Adam and Eve had done. We start with an unseen reality. There will be restoration. And the promises continue as we work our way through Genesis. I mean, most people know the story of Abraham, or Abram as he started out, right? He was actually, his family and where he lived, he came from a family of moon worshipers. They were idolaters. And God takes this man and says, leave your family and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sorry if I'm set and I got my family around me, and somebody shows up and says, no, I want you to go somewhere you don't know where you're going. I'm going to have to show it to you. I'm going to think twice, right? But Abram, up and leaves, and he starts heading somewhere where God is going to show him something. And what does God show him? When we get to Genesis 15, all this stuff has gone on, Right? And in Genesis 15, God says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And Abram's gone. okay, great. What, what reward are you going to give me? You promised me I'd have all these descendants, and you haven't given me a child. I got a servant here, this Eliezer of Damascus. I'm going to have to leave everything to him. And what does God tell him? He says, no, you're going to have Your own son. And Abram's kind of confused, because right now Abram's 100 years old. Now, I'm not 100 years old, but I guarantee you, having a son at my age in life, no. Right? Abram's 100 years old. Sarah's not much younger. And as the Bible tells us, she was well past childbearing age. It's going to take a miracle, isn't it? It's going to take an unseen reality. God promised them a son, and what is their faith and their hope? That God's actually going to give them that son, even though they can't figure out how it's going to happen. And God tells them also, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And what does Abram do? He says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Now, it's one thing for God to make that promise and Abram to believe him. But then God seals that promise because as the sun was going down, Abraham just goes, whoop, he's fast asleep. Right? And there's all these cut up animals. In the ancient Near East, that was how you sealed a treaty. Right? As you would pass between the cut up animals basically saying, if I don't keep my part of this treaty, this is going to happen to me and so both parties would pass through and that way you were sure you were going to keep your treaty. Well, Abram's asleep. Who passes through between the animals? God alone. Right? It said, "Behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces." On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, "To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates." the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God himself passed between these pieces of the animal saying, so may it happen to me if I do not keep this promise. Now how sure do you think that promise is? And Abram believed him. Abraham later believed him. And that promise was passed on through Isaac and Jacob. We read about Isaac where uh, they're in the midst of a famine. How many people here have ever been in the midst of a famine? Not many. None. When you're in the midst of a famine, you've got to go find food wherever you can find it. And so Isaac's going to go try and find food to keep his family alive, and God tells him, don't go to Egypt. I don't want you in Egypt. He says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And when we get to Jacob, how many of y'all have heard the story of Jacob's ladder? Most of us have heard it, haven't we, right? I mean, in reality, it should be called God's ladder, but we'll let that go. It's a sermon for another time. But Jacob's running away from his brother. And on the way, he gets tired puts a rock under his head and falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, he has this dream that this ladder comes down out of heaven to earth. And at one point it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now what had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob done to deserve that kind of promise? I mean, let's face it. These guys weren't model citizens, right? Right? Abraham sold his wife out twice just to save his own life. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob's very name means trickster or deceiver. And we know he stole the birthright from his brother and the blessing of the firstborn. And we like to think of these guys as heroes of the Old Testament, but they're not heroes. They're people. And they had done nothing to deserve this promise. They received this promise solely because of God's nature and what he had promised Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There is an unseen reality that in Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Same thing happened to David, who was called the man after God's own heart. And we know about David. But in Second Samuel, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. Now, we know from reading the Bible and in the Old Testament that Israel was not obedient. And their living in the land was based on their obedience, wasn't it? And eventually, they got themselves evicted from God's land because they weren't obedient. But even their disobedience doesn't derail the promise of God. When we get to Jeremiah and... He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All these promises made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, to the Israelites, to the entire world, all of these promises doesn't depend on what those people did or how they fulfilled or what they believed or how they behaved. It didn't depend on them at all. Who did it depend on? It depended solely on God and His nature and His love and His willingness to forgive and His willingness to promise and to bring forth restoration. All of this is part of God's unseen realities in the Old Testament. But we know that in the New Testament that unseen reality is revealed and we're told that Paul in Romans tells us that Abraham's faith was used as an example of how his hope was based on that promise. In Romans 4, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now we really don't know how much time passed between the promise to Adam and Eve and the promise to Abraham. But historians tell us there's probably 1,800 to 2,000 years between the promise to Abraham and the birth of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years. And we know the Old Testament that Jesus is that fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. The one that was promised in the garden, the one that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that was promised to David, came to life in Jesus Christ. John tells us in his gospel in chapter 1, he said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did he? 2,000 years earlier when he gets the promise. He didn't know how the promise would be fulfilled. He didn't know when. I think for the most part, he really didn't know why, other than God made that promise. And yet he believed that promise as if it had been fulfilled in his own life. Abraham based his hope on God's unseen reality. And when Jesus speaks of Abraham in the New Testament in John 8, this is what he has to say. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. For us today who have seen the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. For thus today who believe in Jesus, who have accepted him as our Savior, who are walking with God. We also realize that not all of God's promises have been fully realized yet, have they? Because we still live in a broken world. We still live in a sinful world. We still live in a world where things just aren't right. But, if we follow Abraham's example, and if we look further into the passage in Revelation, we will see that we do have hope, and that our hope also is based on unseen realities and God's promise. It's not based on how we happen to feel today, or who happened to yell at us, or how much trouble we got in at work. Or maybe you're a husband and wife and you're not talking to each other again. I know husbands and wives never do that, but you know, hypothetically. right? All of that doesn't matter. So as we look at this passage again in four, uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. We have the Trinity present at the unveiling of the revelation. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That first line that mentions who is, who was, and who is to come, I heard a, a... Somebody say that that could actually be translated, who is coming. He's already on his way. There's nothing stopping him. But who is, who was, and who is to come refers to God the Father. The seven spirits before the throne are symbolic. They refer to the Holy Spirit in his completeness, his perfection. And then you have the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And these speak of Jesus being the perfect prophet. As a faithful witness, He only did and said what He was told by His Father. He never went off script. He never ad-libbed. The faithful witness, the perfect prophet. He was the perfect priest. The firstborn from the dead, He offered the only sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. No priest in the history of Israel had ever done that, could ever do that. He's the perfect priest. And he's the perfect king. Ruling in justice and love. And what Revelation tells us, now all of us know, that at some point Jesus is coming back. We know that. We say we believe it. Sometimes we don't act like it, but we say we believe it. We say that Jesus is coming back. But Jesus, right now, in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, is the ruler of the kings on earth. It's not going to be when he comes back. It already is. But this is the same trinity that has existed from eternity. What's the beginning of the Bible tell us in Genesis 1, 1, and 2? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. John 1 1 through 3 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Creation happened through the action of the Trinity, God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came to earth at the start of his ministry when he was 30 years old and goes to be baptized, in Mark 1 it tells us, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you i am well pleased god the father god the son god the holy spirit at the inauguration of jesus ministry on earth that's the same god the father god the son and god the holy spirit who are coming back according to the book of revelation But that promise hasn't yet been realized. We're still waiting for it. This world will be redeemed one day. As Jesus brought reconciliation between man and God, he will also bring renewal to creation. Jesus will defeat Satan completely and eternally. Praise God for that. But even better than that is man and God will live in the paradise that was intended from the beginning. We can still say with Isaiah, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountains quaked at your presence from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear no eye has seen a god besides you who acts for those who wait for him got to think that was in the apostles mind when they're walking around with jesus because one of the things they wanted to know is when's all this going to happen right and their hope was what come on jesus You know, James and John, let's call down fire. They wanted it to happen while Jesus was on earth. And what did Jesus tell them? In Matthew 24, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. What Jesus does know in this passage is that it will occur. It is a promise given by the same God that gave the promises to the patriarchs and David. Revelation is confirmation that Jesus will return. And God's final redemption of creation will be accomplished. Revelations 1 and 7 and 8, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, will following with him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Revelation 20, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation is the unveiling of more of God's unseen realities. These are not things that might happen. These are not things that we wish would happen. These are things that are going to happen because God has promised they would happen, and God is not a man that he should lie. As he promises, so it shall be. Our hope is not based on wishy-washy feelings or, man, you know, I didn't study for that test, so I hope I get a decent grade. I'm not even going to hope for a good grade, right? I'm going to be humble. I'm going to hope for a decent grade. It's not based on that kind of unknowing, chance, karma, probability, whatever you called it. Our hope is founded on the promises of a God who has never lied and never will lie. Our hope is secure. Now, there's so much more we could say about the book of Revelation. We all know how much time, money, words, arguments have been wasted on the book of Revelation. But what Revelation gives us is that further basis for our hope. Our hope in God and our hope in the return of Jesus Christ and the hope that one day we are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth living with God in a renewed creation that no longer has sin in it anywhere. Whether it happens in the next five minutes, the next five years, the next five centuries, right? It really doesn't matter because our hope is sure it's going to happen. If you are a believer, if you have accepted Christ as your Lord, if you have come to and said, God, I'm a sinner, I'm going to fall down at your feet, I accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me at the cross, I want to be buried with him in his death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. If you have done that, you have nothing to fear. Your hope is not in vain. We haven't yet attained to the full measure of Christ like we told we're going to. But again, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Because our hope is secure in the promises of God. But here's where it gets tricky, because if you're not a believer, you truly have no hope at all. Any hope you think you might have is based on how you happen to feel that day. It's based on wishes, it's based on longings, it's based on whatever. A lot of people that aren't believers even hope that there's not a God, and guess what, that's a false hope. All of this stuff that nonbelievers hope in is transitory. It's meaningless. It disappears like a vapor. I wake up one day and I'm feeling great, and oh man, the world's good, and I'm hoping this, that, and the other. I wake up the next day and I'm feeling terrible, and oh, there's no hope at all. Right? Any hope that is not based on God's seen and unseen reality is like quicksand. It appears solid on the surface, but as soon as you step in it, it pulls you down. It sucks you below the surface and you die. The only hope that is sure, the only hope that offers promise, the only hope we can base our life on and know it's not just wishful thinking. It's a hope based on the faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of God the Father in his seen and unseen realities. Please join with me in prayer.